This JMR podcast is sponsored by the Journal of Medical Regulation, serving for over a century as the premier publication on physician licensure, discipline, and regulation. To learn more, visit jmronline.org. Welcome to the JMR podcast. We're recording on November 15th, 2019. I'm David Johnson, your host for today's podcast. Our guests are Tom Mansfield and Patrick Balistreri, attorneys with the North Carolina Medical Board. And their article, Advice for Identifying, Recruiting, and Training Medical Expert Witnesses in Quality of Care Cases, appears in the current issue of the Journal of Medical Regulation. Uh, Mr. Mansfield serves as the Chief Legal Officer with the North Carolina Medical Board, and Mr. Balistreri is a Senior Board Attorney. So, Tom and Patrick, uh, welcome to the JMR Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Well, listen, gentlemen, before we dive into the specifics, uh, perhaps for the benefit of listeners who are less familiar with medical regulation, perhaps you could first explain what it is that we mean by a medical expert witness and you know why medical boards use individuals like this. What what role or purpose do they play? So I'd like to speak to that. It, it gives me an opportunity to say what medical boards like the North Carolina Medical Board do, what medical regulation is, and, and why these expert witnesses are important. Because part of what I wanted to talk about today from the, the broader level is that the North Carolina Medical Board has spent the last 16 or so years really trying to improve its actions with regard to quality of care cases. Historically, for folks who have been around medical regulation for a long time, you might remember that uh, at some point in the past, medical boards tended to focus more on impairment issues, sexual misconduct, and other things not directly related to quality of care. Right. But But this article and the board's work with regard to recruiting expert witnesses and using those in cases is part and parcel to uh, Patrick's and my clients' efforts over the last decade and a half or so to really focus on quality of care and really examine whether the care being rendered to patients is good. And of course, having physicians from the communities who are familiar with the standards of care that are relevant are very important to that mission. And just picking up on what um, Tom said, a large part of what the North Carolina Medical Board does involves reviewing quality of care issues related to how our licensees treat their patients. Is it good care? Is it bad care? Is it within the acceptable standard of care at the time the care was rendered? So in order to answer these questions, the North Carolina Medical Board, we need well-qualified physicians and other healthcare providers who have an experience-based familiarity with the specific quality of care issues in any given case. And these people are generally referred to as medical expert witnesses. They essentially review the records, any related documents and research, depending upon the specifics of the case, to let the board know if the care at issue was within the standard of care or not. Um, Almost always, these experts author a report, and um, depending on how far the case proceeds, they may also testify in a deposition and possibly Um, at a public hearing. It really is, I think, essential to medical regulation 
that physicians and other healthcare providers be willing to assist the board and tell us if the care was within or below standard. I mean, the board really could not do what they do in an effective way that they do without these people helping. Well, thank you. I think that's a great opening to help uh, lead our listeners into the, the rest of this conversation. Um, in looking at your article, you make it pretty clear that it can be challenging sometimes for a board to identify a potential uh, medical expert witness. So I was hoping you might share a little bit of what some of those challenges are in identifying this kind of expertise. I mean, how do you go about finding people or physicians specifically to fill in uh, or serve in this capacity? Let me start by addressing that question sort of at the broadest level. To begin with, the physicians we're calling on to do this work are just super busy people and asking them to add this additional work to their schedule is pretty tough. Pretty tough. Also, we're asking them to judge their peers. We're asking them to look at the care rendered and, and on occasion say that that care was uh, below standard, that, that was bad care. Uh, on top of that, we don't pay these expert witnesses very much money, so uh, they're busy being asked to do more work, being asked to criticize their peers, and they're not getting much money in exchange for that. The good news is that physicians, on average, tend to be very dedicated to serving both the patients and their profession, and so folks are willing to step forward and do this work for us, which uh, is critical to what we're doing. And as we say in the article, you really have to try to match the expert to the case as best you can. That could be challenging. Um, for example, we had a case, these are mostly uh, the same facts, where we were investigating um, a dermatologist who performed an obscure but uh, little used and now no longer used procedure on patients from uh, 2015 to 2018. And so in order to find an appropriate expert for that case, we would need to find a dermatologist who performed the same procedure in the years 2015 to 2018 for a procedure that's no longer being done. And that was a challenge. Um, another issue was um, docs practicing outside of their specialty. Suppose you had a ear, nose, and throat physician who was performing breast implant surgeries in their office, which was a real case we had, who had no training or experience in breast implants other than watching his plastic surgeon friend do six breast implant surgeries in two days. What kind of an expert do you get for that case? I think you probably would be hard-pressed to find an ear, nose, and throat doctor who does breast implant surgeries, and if you do, you need to think seriously whether you want to use that person as an expert. Do you seek to find a plastic surgeon who does breast implants during the same time frame? That is likely the better approach. And as far as finding um, the physicians, our renewal question, um, would you like to be an expert for the board, has actually gotten us a fair amount of approved experts. Um, the other methods that we discuss in the article are internet literature searches and just simply really asking your colleagues and friends. Um, I think that you really should always be open to recruiting experts, not when you have a case that you need an expert for. Um, for example, if you meet a licensee, you think they might make a good expert. And if it comes up in conversation, you know, ask them, would you be interested in um, being an expert for the medical board? And if so, uh, follow up and get a resume. And if they're approved, um, add them to your expert list. That way, you already have a potential expert ready if the right case comes up for that person. 
Hmm. Interesting. So it, it's clearly not a case of just finding a physician. Generally speaking, you're looking to match specialty or practice focus. You're making sure they have been practicing in the in the over the same time period. There's clearly a lot of variables to that. Tom, Patrick, you you also talk about the need for medical boards to be mindful of potential conflicts of interest in securing medical expert witnesses. So could you give some examples of the types of conflict of interest that boards do need to be attentive to? Sure. And here is a two-for-one real-life conflict example uh, from a long time ago. Mm -hmm. You know the person and you treated the patient. This is a case that was sent out to an expert without appropriate vetting where two doctors treated a child who died shortly after doctor number two treated the child. Doctor number one was being investigated. Mm -hmm. The first board expert vote, uh, uh, wrote a very critical report that said doctor number one practiced below the standard and also commented that doctor number two displayed heroic efforts in trying to save the child. Well, turns out that the initial expert the case was sent to was treating expert doctor number two. Doctor number two and doctor number one also had known each other since they were residents together and personally disliked each other. Luckily, we realized the conflict before anything public happened and sent the case out to a conflict-free expert. But the whole thing could have been avoided if the initial expert, i.e. doctor number two, had been vetted properly and asked these two simple questions. Do you know doctor number one and did you treat the patient? Got it. An another possible conflict that we try and stay away from is sending a case out for review to a competitor in the same town. Now, whether a conflict really exists and they're really a competitor, I think um, you can tell from the specific facts of the case in the town. For example, it could be fine to send a case out for review to an anesthesiologist in the same large city if it has several anesthesia groups in the sense that they may not be true real competitors. But suppose you have a small town with two small ophthalmology practices who are always looking for patients that advertise and both practices have made medical board complaints against the others advertising practices. I would look for an ophthalmology expert outside of that small town. Interesting. These are great examples and it seems pretty relevant for medical boards across the country in that even some uh, states with fairly large populations have some uh, areas of their state that may be a little more rural, less densely populated, and thus fewer physicians more likely to know one another. So it sounds like there's clearly a lot of complexity you have to be mindful of. Um, you know, if I had not read your article, I might have thought that, well, once you identify a physician who's willing to serve as an expert witness, that the work's pretty much done. But uh, when I read your article, it made it clear that in many ways the work's just beginning. In fact, your board has developed a checklist that you use to prepare your expert witnesses in reviewing a case. So I was hoping you might be able to share a little bit of what's on your checklist. Sure, I'd love to. What I'll do is um, I'll hit the highlights. Uh, okay. First of all, you have to um, match the expert to the case. I think we've already discussed that. And then mm -hmm. When you talk to the expert, um, you need to tell them on the front end everything they might have to do, really so they understand what they're signing up for. Is it 100 pages of records or is it 1,000 pages of records? Okay, so Tell them they're going to have to review records, 
what the records are like, they're going to have to write a report and tell them maybe you'll have to be deposed and you may have to testify in a public hearing to talk about your report and defend your opinions. Um, you have to go through a conflicts check. Um, I always like to ask the expert, uh, is there anything not on your CV or that I'm not aware of that would make you vulnerable to cross-examination or disqualification mm -hmm. if someone who wanted to cross-examine you started to look you up with that purpose in mind? And then you see what they say. Um, sure. Always reinforce uh, confidentiality. Tell them you cannot discuss the specifics of the case um, with anyone outside of the medical board staff. You can't have contact with anyone involved in the case except for um, relevant medical board staff. Always try to set deadlines to get agreement um, generally when the expert report will be um, completed and sent back to you. Always remind the expert to use the standard of care in place at the time the care was rendered. For completeness, when we're sending out charts, um, we may send out charts with care that goes back four or five years. And just, you, I think it's good to remind the expert that if you're going to re review a chart that has care from 2014 to 2019, if you're going to be commenting and giving opinions on care that was rendered in 2014 and 15, you need to use the standard of care that was in place during those years and not a 2018-2019 standard of care. Um, medical record review after remediation. Always remind them of the time frame with regard to uh, remediation. And what I mean by that is the medical board will oftentimes do a chart review and identify minor to um, sort of medium uh, concerns and they will uh, take an action that involves remediation. It possibly could say, go take this um, continuing medical education, be mindful of the uh, advice given in this letter, and then in 12 months we're going to go um, do a follow-up chart review. So suppose that the remediation um, in an example like that was completed in January of 2018 with um, direction that they're going to do a chart review in a year. And so it comes to be January 2019, they pull five charts, but all the charts are with regard to care from 2016 to um, 2019. You need to remind the expert to confine their opinions to the care that was mm -hmm. rendered after the remediation was complete. Otherwise, it's really not fair to the physician and doesn't really provide any meaningful help because we knew there were issues before the remediation right. began. Right, okay. And then, Finally, just tell the expert to call you um, after reviewing the case materials if they realize um, a conflict of interest which they weren't aware of before or for whatever reason they think they're not suitable um, to review the case or they need something else to review that would assist them. Well, you know, in, in, in a way, Patrick, as you described this, it just made me think of uh, the checklist in some ways is just one more piece of this broader attention to due process that every medical board uh, has to be mindful of uh, as they review and uh, adjudicate matters before them. Exactly, yes. Well, you know, and, you're... And, and, and I'm sorry for interrupting, but can I also just say that everything Patrick just uh, discussed from that checklist is on the checklist because each and every one of those things has gone wrong at some point <laughs> in time in the last uh, dozen, 15, 16 years. So th those are not just things we sat around and thought of as a good idea, but uh, were generated out of this evolution over time that showed us what can go wrong. So we turned that into a checklist. 
Excellent. Yeah, it sounds like lessons learned that have been turned into something that's going to be helpful going forward. Yeah. Well, in, in fact, along the same line, I, I noted in your article that you uh, have a, an expert reviewer manual that you've developed to work with these witnesses. I'm sure this is a byproduct of what you've just described, Tom, some of this learning experience. And I'm suspecting this has been invaluable in sort of capturing and codifying your experience. Could you say a little bit about this expert reviewer manual? Because I suspect uh, there may be staff at other medical boards that would be very interested in this particular piece. Well, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, the, the manual itself, like the checklist, is the product of an evolution over time that became uh, increasingly clear that one was needed as we uh, began doing more and more quality care cases, sending more and more cases out for expert review uh, with the possibility of using those experts at a, at a hearing in a case. So that that is how it arose. Uh, I'll let Patrick speak to the uh, more specific um, history behind how the manual was created. And I and also mentioned that Patrick has done a lot of work on the manual over, over time. And also, with regard to the article that we're referring to, I do want to give Patrick the lion's share of credit for the work behind that article and being the master of the, the details that we're talking about today. Well, thanks. We, um, <laughs> with, with regard to the expert manual, we decided um, that we wanted basically a not too long and not too technical manual to give to our experts, really to let them know what this whole expert review and expert medical witness thing is and how it works. And so I hope that our expert um, reviewer manual has achieved that balance. And it, and it was written almost entirely um, by our really outstanding associate medical director, Dr. Scott Kirby. Thanks, Dr. Kirby. Shout out to him. <laughs> Iowa and California um, were also kind enough to allow us to lift and um, copy portions of their manuals, which are also excellent examples of an expert manual. And we send that out um, to our experts, and we've actually received very um, positive um, feedback from it. Wonderful. Well, I want to go back to uh, a term that you've used earlier in uh, our conversation, uh, standard of care. And, and you write that it represents, and I'm going to quote here, what a reasonably prudent physician would do under the same or similar circumstances, end quote. Now, this is obviously fairly broad language and perhaps by necessity. So can you talk a bit about how uh, your board or medical boards in general then have to work with or apply this kind of language and how they handle these quality of care cases? Sure. And I'm going to go general and then give you a specific example. Um, it okay. really is very, very important um, to use the correct standard of care. And as you say, um, page five of the um, manual um, t says that physicians should not evaluate a case based on their personal standard of care. Okay, but rather on what a reasonably prudent physician would do under the same or similar circumstances. And so you really need to find out what the relevant standard of care is in your jurisdiction. There are nationwide standards of care, statewide standards of care, community standards of care. Make sure the expert understands it and is applying it to the case under review. And if you don't do that, you can get in trouble. If you take the intravascular ultrasound, match the expert to the case example from the article, that right. was in general 
a real case that we sent it out to multiple experts on. The defense um, had multiple experts, we had multiple experts, but one of the experts that we sent it out to um, felt that the doctor being investigated um, was practicing below standard in every single chart that he reviewed and was overutilizing the intravascular ultrasound. But every other expert said that the utilization of the intravascular ultrasound was within the standard, mm -hmm. and that's what people were doing. And so I got on the phone and I called up the doctor who said um, that uh, the IVUS was being overutilized. And I said, I'm just trying to figure this out. Um, we have four other reports and they all say that interventional cardiologists, about half to two thirds of them do it the exact same way as the doctor under investigation. And the response was, well, about two thirds to a half of the people that I work with do it the exact same way as the doctor under investigation. But I don't personally think it's a good thing to do. And I don't think anybody Ooh. should do it, even though <laughs> half the people do it. Oh, so my. we had a discussion about what personal standard of care means and what a reasonably prudent physician uh, would do under the same or similar circumstances uh, means. And, and, and um, so, so he, he ended up saying that it was uh, within the standard based upon the majority of uh, doctors um, creating the standard. So I think if half to two-thirds of the people are doing something a third way, or a certain way, um, that it almost certainly would be deemed to be within the standard of care. Well, you know, uh, uh, Patrick, that anecdote or that story right there just really underscores clearly the value of, for example, your checklist and the reviewer manual, because it, I'm sure it's designed to help you avoid just these kind of uh, conversations or situations. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, you, you have written that uh, in, in talking with these potential expert witnesses that the board asks people to act as an umpire. And I guess this is maybe a natural follow-up to the story you just shared. You're acting the, or asking the uh, medical expert witness to act as an umpire and sort of stay in their appropriate lane. Can you say maybe a little more about this? Because I think that anecdote or story you just shared is kind of uh, evocative of this. Sure. And um, when, we, when, we, when we speak to the experts, um, we tell them, listen, um, I don't care if your opinion is within or below the standard, specifically mm -hmm. one way or the other. What I care about is that your opinion is a correct one and tells the board if the care rendered in this case was acceptable and within the standard or was not acceptable and below. Just tell us your honest, objective opinion and that's fine. That's all we want. We're not looking for a specific result. We just want you to tell us if the care was within or below the standard. Don't advocate for the physician. Don't advocate for the medical board. Your role is to right. review the materials, determine if there was a departure from the standard um, of care. And we also tell them that sending the case out for review doesn't necessarily suggest that the care was below the standard. And we need you to wrap your head around that and understand that just because there is an investigation doesn't automatically mean somebody did something wrong. And, and I'd like to add a comment to that also, which is not, not only do we need the outside expert reviewer, expert witness to understand that concept, that the fact that we're asking for an opinion doesn't mean that we have made some predetermination that there's a problem. And in addition to that expert knowing that, 
That's important for those of us who are board attorneys working with our board, working with the other staff at our medical boards uh, to help the other folks involved understand the board members need to understand when we're recommending that a case be sent out for an expert review, that that should not uh, suggest that uh, any conclusion has been made uh, that the care was in fact below standard. And not, not only our board members, but the other staff we work with need to understand that because right. as, as we all strive to do the best job possible in quality care cases, we're going to send out cases where the answer is going to come back, just as Patrick said a, a minute ago, the mm-hmm. expert's going to give us their straight up view on the case and say it can't, it's within standard. That's, that's fine. We're, as Patrick said, we're not looking for a result. So uh, board members and non-attorney staff, other folks doing this work, shouldn't be afraid and shouldn't be nervous about sending a case out, um, it, you know, based on the idea that someone thinks that the care is below standard and we're just trying to prove that. What we need to find out is whether the care was good care, whether it was, was within the standard, and if the expert reviews come back that it was within the standard, great, the medical board and its staff have done their job to protect the public. It sounds like you're approaching it as there's an open question there, not an accusation, in essence. I would agree with that. Yes. Um, So clearly there's a lot of uh, effort you're doing with these medical expert witnesses. Uh, Obviously, they don't provide a a verbal report back. I suspect this has to come back as a written report. Could you um, tell me what it is the board sort of expects in their report back to the medical board itself? Sure. Um, first of all, um, I think this goes without saying, but never um, uh, should anyone ever ask an expert to insert specific opinions in the report. Um, that should never happen. Um, you want the expert's own specific opinion. And I, I tell them that uh, I'd like your report to have um, a date-specific summary of the care at issue. Um, I'd like you to use the standard of care at the time that the care was provided. Um, I'd like you to explain whether the care was below or within the standard of care. In the cases where the care is um, within the standard of care, there's usually an, uh, not a lot of explanation. It's, it's, it's more of like, here's a summary of the care. This was um, all appropriately done. It's, 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 it's how we do it. It's more where there's a departure that there's more of a discussion. But in doing that, what they're doing is they're applying the standard of care to the specifics of the care rendered. So all referenced departures from the standard of care should be date specific, okay? Mm -hmm. And it should state what was done or not done, why it was a departure, and what should have been done or should not have been done to meet the standard of care. And then I always tell the experts, be professional, don't assume anything or use any type of inflammatory language. One time we had a report that said even a first-year resident should know that. Um, that there's really no place for that in an in a, in a expert report. Got it. Well, this has been very uh, illuminating for me just to hear you talk through aspects of your article, you know, even after reading through it, just to have a chance to ask questions and hear you kind of articulate some clear answers to these things really is uh, helpful to me. Uh, Tom and Patrick, I'd like to thank you both for uh, joining us for the JMR podcast today. Thank Thank you so much. And for our listeners, if you would like to read the full article, uh, 
from Tom and Patrick. It is in the current issue of the JMR Online. Look for advice for identifying, recruiting, and training medical expert witnesses in quality of care cases. And I hope everyone will join us again soon for our next edition of the JMR Podcast. This JMR Podcast is sponsored by the Journal of Medical Regulation serving for over a century as the premier publication on physician licensure, discipline, and regulation. To learn more, visit jmronline.org.